You may have participated in it so many times in the course of your lives that and many of you could probably tell the story as well as I can. Right? The story of Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem at the beginning of Holy Week as pilgrims lined the streets with their palm branches as you did coming down the aisle and our Lord Jesus rides into the city amid the sound of the cheering crowds. But because it's so familiar almost to the point of becoming, you know, same old, same old, that I'm afraid the bigger implications of it have been lost in many churches and, and perhaps even in this one, but I still want to read it to you just briefly from Matthew's Gospel. Uh, do it just quickly as background before we get into the, the rest of the message. So I hope you have your Bibles with you. If you're following along, we're looking at the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. And Matthew tells us, as Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into the village over there, he said. As soon as you enter it, you see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks you what you're doing, just say, the Lord needs them. He will immediately let you take them. And this took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, Tell the people of Jerusalem, Look, your king is coming to you. He's humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over the colt, and he sat on it. And most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and all the people around him were shouting, Praise God for David's son. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in highest heaven. The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this? They asked. Who is this? Who is this? As they and we perhaps even unconsciously, wave our palm fronds and, and sing marching to Zion, never realizing that what we're actually doing, like consciously or not, is challenging the undue influence of every earthly magistrate, the supremacy of every political despot, and the legitimacy of every earthly empire that desires to usurp the highest place of our allegiance, because, church, that place is reserved to one alone. Reserved even above our attachment to our own personal autonomy. And we can't stay neutral about it. Because Palm Sunday demands a choice. It requires the realignment of our loyalties and an audible declaration of devotion. And, and this is one that I want us to consider the implications of through the lens of the next psalm in our series through Psalm 146. If you're just joining us for the first time either here or online... We've been doing the Psalms for close to three years now, and we're finally getting close to the end. Um, but now as we come to uh, Psalm 146, and I want to have us think together about the deeper and very revolutionary, very nonconformist, very radical implications of it, and of what it means for us all of these centuries later, what it means that our Lord picked this moment and this method to ride in to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, to make this dramatic public entry into the city, the entry that marked the end of all privacy of movement, that marked the end of all personal safety for him, the beginning of what would be an inevitable collision course between Jesus and the religious and political authorities, both Jewish and Roman, 
uh, two groups that almost never agreed on anything, including the weather, but who together saw the way the wind was blowing for Jesus and struck a devil's bargain to seek his destruction. So I want you to be kind of thinking of all of that, thinking about those things and about this week, this, this holy week that we're headed into as we read through the text of our, our psalm today, 146. So if you're following along in your Bible, Psalm 146, verse 1, the psalmist says, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and on that very day his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of God to us today. And let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you for that advice not to put our trust in princes, not to put our trust in, uh, in our leaders, Lord, but because it's a trap. No matter what party they're from or, or where they uh, claim to have their morals, uh, Father, we put our trust in one alone, and that's in your Son, Jesus Christ. And so we ask that you would come now by your Holy Spirit, because, Father, we want to see Jesus in the midst of this word that you've given to us today. And we ask it in his name. Amen. So actually, the, the psalmist's advice here in today's reading, when we read, put not your trust in princes, is an oft-repeated notion throughout Scripture, because if you remember, back in our psalm series in Psalm 118, verses 8 through 9, which told us it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Uh, Jeremiah 17.5 puts it even more bluntly than that, saying, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man, making flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. And, you know, while I, I guess... Other people have to be trusted from time to time in our everyday lives. When it comes to the important matters, however, we cannot afford to, as one commentator has said, lean on the broken crutch of human aid. Uh, And there are a lot of reasons for that. Firstly, because people are imperfect. Even the most learned, the most talented, the most competent of men and women will inevitably make missteps and mistakes. And according to Scripture... Even under the best of circumstances and the most altruistic of motives, we human beings always leave everything we touch tainted with sin. Always. Secondly, men and women are mortal. Several of those scriptures that warn us not to put our trust in other human beings mention the fact that people are here today and gone tomorrow. For instance, back, way back in Psalm 62.9, we read... Those of low estate are but a breath. 
those of high estate are a delusion, and the balances, they go up, but they are together lighter than a breath. And so, in other words, no matter whether the rest of humanity thinks we are the top of the heap or the bottom of the barrel, people live and die so quickly that in the flesh, whether somebody is well-born or a backwoods work hand, they lack both the wisdom and the long-term perspective to be trusted on the big questions of life. Which leaves us ultimately with the reality that regardless of any earthly honors or accolades, human beings are basically unreliable. Right? We know that, right? We, we blow hot and cold with people. We have self-interest that sometimes align with others and other times don't. And, and guys, when it comes to princes, when it comes to leaders, when it comes to politicians, they especially do not have our best interests in mind. Amen, somebody? Right? <laughs> Regardless of their claims to high moral principles or their party affiliations, because they have not only all those same human failings we mentioned, but also they have their own political futures to pursue. And, and, and right about now, you may perhaps be saying to yourself, well, Pastor, that's all very interesting, but what in the world does that have to do with Palm Sunday? And I'm glad you asked. Because the events of that very first Palm Sunday are one of the best places to see these scriptural principles that I've been explaining played out in the conflicting kingdoms and the opposing parades that we find in these preliminary events of Holy Week. Because the differences between our Lord Jesus and those worldly forces arrayed against him actually stand out in starkest contrast right here. And that's because Jesus wasn't the only important person to make a big entrance into the holy city on that week. Because also entering Jerusalem at Passover time from the opposite side of the city was the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. Now normally, Pilate lived in a place called Caesarea by the sea. So in other words, Pilate, like most politicians, spent most of his time at his beach house his private beach house, safely isolated from the lives of those lesser mortals that he ruled over. But, but with the crowds of devout Jews flowing into Jerusalem that week to commemorate the epic, historic liberation from the might of Egypt at the Exodus, the Roman overlords naturally would want to put on a display of force, uh, a display to discourage any uprisings and to keep the Jews from getting any ideas about any possibility of liberation from Rome. And so during Passover season each year, the Roman procurator moved his headquarters from Caesarea to Jerusalem to reinforce the Roman garrison stationed in the Antonia Fortress, which overlooked the temple and its courts. And Pilate did it with a great show of strength, a show designed to remind the people that they may have gotten out from underneath the sandal of the Egyptian pharaohs in their past, but that they were not ever going to be able to throw off the boot of Rome. I want to share with you how one contemporary scholar describes this military parade of pilots. He says, The spectacle that attended the procurator's entrance into the city included cavalry on horses, foot soldiers with leather armor and helmets and weapons, imperial banners and golden eagles mounted on poles glinting in the sun. And in the middle of the procession was Pilate. Roman governor, coming in the name of the emperor who himself expected his subjects to worship him as God. And then the author concludes this description of all of this by saying, it would have been a sobering, 
intimidating demonstration of raw imperial power and a visually poignant extension of the theology of Caesar's empire, theology that was believed to have ushered in a new era of world peace, peace through Rome's military strength. Can you just imagine like the sights and sounds of that whole parade? Right, the marching of soldiers' feet through the city, the, the creaking of saddles, the, the clinking of the metal on the bridles, the beating of drums, the, this swirl of dust clouds trailing behind the whole thing. And then there's Jesus' procession. Right? Coming out from the east, from the opposite side of the city. It was very different, right? Uh, it started out really small. Beginning on the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley and in through the eastern gate into the city. And then all of a sudden these, these crowds start to gather gawking to see this famous rabbi from Galilee and, and whether perhaps he would perform another miracle like they'd heard about. And if you remember though, normally Jesus had tried to move around pretty quietly, right? Remember a lot of times the Gospels record that Jesus would heal people and then say things like, go, go and don't tell anybody about this. Don't tell anybody about this healing. But here, today though, he intentionally sets in motion a well-planned and perfectly timed parade one that was designed to grab the people's attention and prompt them to recall the golden age of their ancestors' return from exile in Babylon and of the proclamation of one of their greatest messianic prophets, a man by the name of Zechariah, the same mighty man of God who ministered to the Jewish people during their repatriation of Israel and one of the ones who promised them a future Messiah king. So I want you to listen to what he wrote. This is, he wrote this about 500 years before Jesus' birth. And it was part of our Matthew reading, if you were listening. Zechariah 9, beginning in verse 1. So rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout for triumph, O people of Israel. Look, your king is coming to you. Remember, he wrote this 500 years ahead of time. He's righteous and victorious, yet he's humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle, and your king will bring peace to the nations. His realm will stretch from sea to sea and from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth because, because of the covenant I made with you, a covenant sealed with blood. Wow. Could there, could there be anything more to the point of today? Anything more specific to Jesus' parade? Or, at the same time, anything that would sound more like sedition to the ears of the Roman emperor's chief consul for Palestine and his phalanx of soldiers turned out in parade dress? Because of everybody witnessing this, all of them that day, whatever side they're on, in whatever way they wanted to perceive what was happening all around them on that first Palm Sunday morning, well, guess what, guys? They all missed the point. They all missed the point by not seeing this giant redwood of a promise that I just read to you standing there at the end of all of those little lesser trees of their own personal interest. Because the people in the streets just wanted to shout about political warfare or about social and economic justice or, or about the Roman chariots clogging up their streets or the border checkpoints harassing the holiday travelers to the temple when all Jesus had on his mind was the cross. When Jesus set his face like flint to that final destination of the Friday that we somehow call good. 
Because not only is the manner of Jesus' arrival that day significant from the standpoint of that Old Testament prophecy in Zechariah that we read, and not only are the political implications of a kingdom to rival Rome coming out here, but his arrival at the Passover season adds another for us whole dimension, one that the masses of the crowds in the holy city that day couldn't yet foresee, and that is the fact that it's a clear foreshadowing of Jesus' impending death in offering himself as the new Passover lamb and that final sacrifice as he rides now into Jerusalem fully aware of the prophecy he's fulfilling. A short time later as he gets closer to the city's heart, we read, and I read to you this morning, Jesus was in the center of the procession and the people all around him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And you see, this, this wasn't by chance either because there's another direct link to Scripture. That phrase, Hosanna, it appears only one time in that way in the Old Testament. And if you remember, that's from our book of Psalms study too. That's what the crowd here are singing and shouting as Jesus enters the city, singing a hymn that was very familiar to the people, a liturgy coming directly from Scripture that loops in the whole idea of the palm branches you carried today and links them to the kingship of our Jesus and his intention to offer up his very life on the cross. You know, in reality, I think that that psalm text actually kind of completes the background of Jesus' triumphal entry because it actually, too, describes the coming of a king into a city. But what's so striking about it is the king in this psalm that I'm going to share with you enters not to be received into a throne, but to ascend to the altar and make a sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself. So if you remember back in Psalm 118 when we read this, Verse 19 says, Open for me the gates where the righteous enter, and I will go in and thank the Lord. These gates lead to the presence of the Lord, and the godly enter here. I thank you for answering my prayer and giving me victory. The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's wonderful to see. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Now here's the verse, Hosanna. Please, Lord, please save us. Please, Lord, give us success. And that word there, that word Hosanna from that psalm translates from the Hebrew phrase Hoshiana, which is, it means literally that, save us, we pray. And so when we get to the time of Jesus' triumphant entry, that's what the people are calling out. As they travel into Jerusalem with Jesus, they shout, Hosanna to the son of David. Hoshiana ben David, save us, save us, we pray. Deliver us, son of David. And you see, they're making a prayer for deliverance, and they, they call Jesus that son of David, recognizing he's a direct descendant of the royal line, recognizing him as the Messiah of the Davidic covenant. But, but here's, here's the catch. While the people recognize that Jesus might be the long-awaited king of Israel, that he may be their political savior, what they don't see, or perhaps what they refuse to see, is what kind of king that he's going to be and how he's going to reign. Because Hosanna isn't the last line of that particular psalm, it continues, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. And so you see, the people cried out to be saved, and God didn't ignore them. He sent a Savior, just not the way they expected because the altar on which Jesus will pour out the blood of his covenant, the blood of the new and living sacrifice, was not the bronze altar they were looking to in the temple, 
but it was on the table of the Last Supper in the upper room that we're going to celebrate together Thursday night. And the throne that Jesus was about to ascend as king was not the golden throne of his ancestor David, but the wooden throne of the cross. Do you see those contrasts here between, between what the Jews expected and what Jesus offered? Between Pilate's march into the city and Jesus' procession? Because you see, you see, Pilate proclaimed the rule of man. Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of God. Pilate's procession was a demonstration of imperial power of Rome. Jesus' parade was a demonstration of power in restraint. And we are not accustomed to that very much in this day and age. To a philosophy of power that, as one author put it, uh, power held in restraint is power at its highest. For it shows not only the possession of strength, but the possession of the power to control the strength that one possesses. And I'll give you just a really quick example as I close. You guys remember French Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte after he was defeated in the Battle of Waterloo and sent into exile. He had a whole lot of time to think, contemplating his rise to power, his achievements in Europe, his imperial legacy. Whoops. And, and he came to this kind of same conclusion, this realization. This is what he wrote in his diary in Elba. He wrote, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is not a mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Said Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself, we all founded great empires, but upon what do these creations of our genius depend? They depend on force. Napoleon said, Jesus alone founded his empire upon love, and to this very day, millions would die for him. Because you see, Jesus had come to set up a kingdom, just not the kind of kingdom anybody was looking for. See, people wanted to use Jesus as a means to an end, to overthrow the Romans, instead of as an end in himself, because his triumph would not be through the cunning of politicians or the power of armies or the crush of chariots or the weapons of offense, but through the offering of his very own life, an offering by means of his blood, the blood of the new covenant, the blood that brings exiles home, and sets captives free physically and spiritually, as Jesus comes now to accomplish all of that, Matthew says today, the entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this? Who is this, they ask? Who is this? You see, that's the question, as I, as I close, that we need to think about, because people have been asking that for 2,000 years. Now, on the surface, it seems like a simple question of identification. But it's so much more than that. It's, it's the most critical question you will ever be asked. And everybody has to answer it. Nobody's exempt. Not princes, not paupers, not presidents, not paper boys. Nobody gets a pass. And so how do you answer it? Can you answer it correctly? And how you answer it is important because your eternity is at stake. Is he a prophet? Is he a good teacher? Is he a fake? Or is he something more? Is he much more? Is he the good shepherd? Is he the son of God, the king of kings, the Lord of lords? The only trouble is, though, either way, none of those answers really answer the question. Because the question is not so much who is Jesus, but who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? And if you haven't answered that question yet, or if you're just learning, maybe you haven't answered it correctly in light of the truth of God's word, I want to invite you to do that today before you leave. Do it today. Now is the day. Today is the time. Turn from your reliance on man. Embrace Christ. Repent and believe the gospel. Because as we read today, 
Put not your trust in princes in whom there is no salvation. Because, church, there is salvation in no other name than the name of Jesus Christ and in his person and work on the cross. Don't let his parade pass you by. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were willing to come, to live, to die. But Lord, we know that at the end of this week, you were raised again from the dead so that we can have a new and living hope because of all that you've done. And so we ask, Father, that you would be with us this week. I pray, Lord, uh, if there's anyone here or under the sound of my voice that don't know you as their Lord and Savior, that you would surprise them by the reality of your presence, that you would open their hearts and minds and ears as only you can. And Lord, you would lead us into this week reliving the truth of all that you've done for us. And we ask these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.